five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. In this episode, we are talking about computing in space again. We can't live without computing on Earth, and we can't go to space without computing either. And this isn't just about onboard computers helping to run spacecraft as such, but also about dealing with the ever-increasing amount of data we are producing in space. If you listened to the episode with Exospace a few weeks ago, you already know a little bit about this topic. This week, my guest is Steve Good, the Chief Commercial Officer of Ramon Space, another company focused on computing in space. Enjoy! If you like this podcast, a reminder to please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple Podcasts, so more people can find it. Thank you. Here a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Steve Good from Ramon. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, welcome back, everybody. This week, I'm here with Steve Good, who is the Chief Commercial Officer of Ramon Space. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. And why don't we start off, as always, Steve, and if you can kind of give us sort of the, the, the elevator pitch or the short summary pitch on what Ramon is doing. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, our, our vision is to transform space into a digital universe. And, and the way to do that is to unleash uh, computing infrastructure across all satellites and spacecraft. If you look at the industry uh, today, and I'm a uh, satellite lifer. So I've been in the satellite operation business, the ground equipment business, the uh, satellite services business, and most recently, the, the manufacturing uh, of satellites. You know, the, the science that we put into uh, space is really in the rockets. So we put a lot of money and a lot of focus as an industry into um, democratizing space, if you will, from a launch perspective and making sure that we can get these proliferated uh, LEOs, MEO satellites, GEOs up uh, cost effectively. We, we haven't, as an industry, put as much focus on the computing elements uh, of space. So our focus at Ramon.space, and um, we were formed back in uh, 2004. We've been in space since uh, 2014, is really to move Earth-like supercomputing, processing, storage uh, into space and to make uh, space, whether it be at one of the uh, LEO-MEO geo orbits or into deep space, and we've done we've done all of those to make it a, a a more intelligent network. So to take computing 
uh, processing into space and, and make sure that uh, we don't, we have a more intelligent network, if you will, more intelligent spacecraft. And that's going to become more important as our, uh, as big data becomes even bigger. And there, there continues to grow exponentially the amounts of data that needs to be processed, analyzed, and insights need to be gathered from that. So, so our vision is really to, to, to take Earth-like computing into space. It, it's a big goal. It's a big vision, but we're building it from the ground up and we're uh, taking it to the streets. You know, having been in the industry, I, I saw the, the value uh, of the Ramon.space opportunity and uh, was excited by it and joined them uh, a few months ago. So <laughs> it, it takes an ecosystem, if you will, to build a, an intelligent uh, space, but uh, we, we certainly want to be uh, one of the, uh, the instigators, if you will, or the uh, catalysts to do so. Okay. And I think one thing that you were mentioning where maybe you have to take a step back and we should sort of explain for listeners exactly what the current status of, you know, what we're doing in space. You were talking about sort of like taking what you described as the supercomputing capabilities we have on Earth into space, which is obviously implying that we currently do not have that. And in, in fact, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, probably quite far from that. I think there's a sort of you know, run-of-the-mill comparisons people sometimes make that the sort of like an advanced iPhone has more computing power than, I mean, not even Apollo, I think possibly even more computing power than the space shuttle, if I'm not mistaken. And, and we're like a long way away from like, let's say like an advanced gaming laptop or something on Earth. Could you just kind of quickly describe kind of like really what the current state is so people kind of can grasp, you know, how many generations, so to speak, we are behind in space of what people are used to on Earth? Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, we, we as an industry ha have, have focused on making rad hard technology. You know, space, space is, is, is tough. Uh, radiation. Uh, temperatures, working within a vacuum without gravity. So it, it's, it's a tough environment. And um, those that uh, are on the surface side, looking at um, five years out, seven years out, 10 years out, 15, even 20 years out, uh, need to look at the uh, demands of the industry and um, build spacecraft that are resilient enough to support those services. And the challenge is that we, we typically have focused on redundancy. We have focused on hardware, very strong focus on hardware to make sure that the hardware works, because unfortunately, it's very difficult to, to go there and physically change hardware or fix hardware. And there hasn't been as much focus on, on the software element. So uh, we, we are, as an industry, moving towards software-defined elements. You'll mm -hmm. see the phrase software-defined out there. Um, but what we're focused on and what we need to focus on as an industry is software-empowered, software-enabled, the ability to move from being a hardware business into a software business. And, you know, if we look at where Ramon.space fits, we, we're, we want to be the commercial off-the-shelf computing uh, platform for the space industry. So, yes, high aspirations, but our focus is really on the software. Now, if you build the hardware from the ground up, then you have the software that can that can fit on it. But the, the challenge right now is the space industry, we went from connectivity, we now have um, software-defined radios, we have uh, channelizers, we have beamformers, things like that, that make our spacecraft much more intelligent uh, from a physical standpoint, the ability to use um, specified and tailored physics, if you will, to size beams and to radiate power into certain areas. What we haven't done is focus on the software and the ability to do processing on board. If I use an example of Earth observation, um, every pixel 
that is transmitted to the satellite needs to be stored and then downlinked into a gateway location when those satellites are over the gateway location. What if we could be intelligent and either uh, make the processing and decision-making on board, or if we could do intelligent compression on board based upon the data, then that would do a couple things. One, it would decrease the amount of storage needed, and two, it would significantly decrease the amount of power required to transmit down to Earth stations, gateway stations, that are often throttled, that need to be throttled back, and there's only so much storage there. So I think we as an industry to get to the next step, and one thing that I say is once we make satellite invisible, the spacecraft itself invisible within a hybrid network, that's really when we as an industry have arrived into the larger telecom infrastructure. So it's moving from if you assume that the platform is hardened, that the hardware is resilient, then you add on the computing resources and the storage resources and the edge computing capabilities that really move us as an industry into that next level. Okay, but sticking with the hardware for a moment, because I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but so I'm part of my background is in machine learning. So I fully agree with what you're saying, for example, of you know using you know machine learning and for example for remote sensing to compute things some things on the edge, having then those advantages that you're saying, like you know, for example, only transmitting usable data back and maybe doing some you know urgent analysis right there at the edge. Those algorithms basically will be the same algorithms as on, on Earth, right? I mean, I don't see why we necessarily would have to space adapt them. Um, maybe we do. The, the hardware is sort of the problem, isn't it? Because for advanced machine learning, let's say on Earth, you know, I would use specialized or sort of semi-specialized or even specialized chips like GPUs or, or even more advanced chips. And is that something, you know, that we have in space at this point? Is that something you guys are working on or where does that all stand? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't as an industry have that today. So we have come at it from a ground up perspective. So we design our own ASICs in-house and uh, we incorporate those into, uh, into systems. So we have SSDs, solid state devices that are stored within the integrated circuits. So so there, there's no moving parts up there, um, which, which allows us to be faster, less volatile. And, and one comment you made is, would the algorithms be similar? Yes, some of the algorithms would be similar. We can use standard algorithms for machine learning, for artificial intelligence, but also offering the ability to offer APIs that allow users to program their own algorithms or to reprogram the mission or reprogram the, you know, how algorithms are only as good as, as, as the logic behind and as, um, um, situations change, it, it could be and should be possible for these spacecraft, these decision-making units to be programmable uh, along the way. And, and the only way to do that is to have a solid, uh, as you said, a solid hardware that um, has rad radiation-hardened silicon uh, with FDIR techniques. So we come at it from a multi-core architecture perspective to ensure that the processing is there, but it, it's, it's, it's like building a, a foundational element of the hardware being radiation-hardened and then you put the software on top of that. If you look at from the satellite spacecraft manufacturing perspective, you have size, weight, and power. Mm -hmm. Power is the amount of power draw. And one of the, the challenges to date has been the power draw of processing on orbit. Power over 7, 10, 15 years is a key element, especially as solar panels fail and other things happen. So if you have a, a very small power draw, and that's what we're building towards, if your weight is small, and, and we use hardening that involves both hardware, but also software, we have virtual radiation shield is something that we do in, in software that helps us with that, that radiation hardening. If your weight is small, 
the smaller your encasing, if you will, is. Launch costs are being uh, reduced, but uh, every kilogram matters in, in launches uh, these days, and that, that comes at a cost. And also the size. So the size of the unit on board a GEO is not so big a uh, deal as within a LEO. So we're really focused at it from the needs and concerns of the satellite operator the satellite manufacturer, the launcher, to make sure that the economics make sense. Yeah, you bring up some really important elements here, how, you know, which one has to keep in mind for computing in space, I guess, like like the weight, the volume, and and like you said, importantly, the power requirement. I guess, do you guys use metrics like something, I guess, you know, operations, or I guess in, in computer science speak, we should uh, say MIPS, like millions of instructions per seconds per, per watt or something like that. Is that something you guys explicitly look at? Absolutely. You fit the nail on the head. You know, we, we, we need to redefine our figures of merit, I think, in the, uh, in the industry. And MIPS per watt is an absolute driver. You know, if you look at power draw on a satellite, again, space is hard. So uh, it's, it's great to just put a supercomputer in space, which has the attributes of a supercomputer. But if it's drawing a huge amount of power, which is taking away from other operations on the satellite, including the, uh, the radios and the channelization and the beamformers, and, you know, over time, these satellites degrade. Having worked at a satellite operator and trying to make money with satellites after their 15-year lifetime, every year that a satellite is in use over its design life is profit to the satellite operator, to the satellite service provider. So the less power that we draw, and I think you've hit the nail on the head, and that is absolutely what we're driving towards is reducing um, sorry, increasing and maximizing that MIPS per watt. And, and part of where I thought of that, so I spent, you know, a little bit of time in the in the crypto community. And I don't know whether you've ever looked at crypto in, in, in more detail, but sort of like one of the most important sort of drivers you look at in, in Bitcoin mining is basically the number of hashes you can do per watt. Um, <laughs> leave aside the volume and the weight for a moment, but it, in the power perspective, it's actually, it's actually basically the same metric almost. Uh, so I was wondering, is, is there anything by chance you guys are, are you talking to the crypto community and chip manufacturers there or some like lessons you can draw from them is there any interaction that with that community? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're sort of taking, you know, I'm I'm in the minority at Ramon.Space being a, space, a satellite person, a space person. So um, our foundation is in SSDs uh, for space. Our foundation is in minimizing power draw. Our missions, we, we've, we've gone on to, uh, we've jumped onto asteroids, we've gone to Mars, we've gone to the moon. Um, and it's very key there to be resilient. Uh, resilient enough to, because these missions are very key and we play key roles in those missions. So we, we also see the ability to uh, implement different, and, and whenever you talk about programmable, whenever you talk about processing, that does draw a lot of power. So we're, we're sort of increasing the aperture, if you will, not of building from the satellite out, but from the ground up into space. So we're taking a different perspective and we're, we're adding, um, as a corporation, we're adding satellite space folks that have actually, that know how the money changes hands up and down the value chain on how to provide and, and create value and, and determine what that value is. But uh, it's been very, uh, I've been with the company for two months now and, and I've learned a ton uh, about um, foundational ground elements and power draw uh, onto spacecraft. And that's really what brought me over to Ramon.Space because I see the absolute 
absolute value proposition of the opportunity. And taking a step back, um, what are you guys actually building? Are you guys doing the chips? Are you guys doing boards? Are you guys doing uh, full computers? We started in chips. So good question. We started in chips and that's how the company was formed back in uh, 2004. Uh, 2014, we started to go into space. We're now building boards into systems, into um, full computers. So we'll be launching our first formal product offerings, even though we are a, uh, what's the math? 18-year-old company, 17-year-old company. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be launching our first commercially available products here in uh, 2022. So those are systems. So we still have folks that are that are looking to us for chips, for research, but we're really transforming the company and really taking it commercial, if you will. Uh, again, with a focus of being the space COTS provider for supercomputing in space. So we offer systems moving into 2022. We've had some interesting discussions with folks across the industry from the Leo providers to geo folks, uh, earth observation, remote sensing, and of course our deep space missions. So we've done a lot of work with ESA, with NASA, uh, with JAXA, all of the agencies. But uh, as we move forward, we're, we're focused much more on systems. And I mean, we're talking about deep space. And, and, and by the way, we should talk about sort of radiation in more detail in a second. In terms of deep space missions, I guess the sort of obvious thing, especially if you look at the calendar for 2022 and going forward is is the increasing number of planned moon missions. Are you guys involved there? Yeah, absolutely. We were involved in the uh, Bereshit 1 mission back in the day. Bereshit 2 should be uh, should be uh, move for moving forward soon. And we're involved in other moon missions uh, as they come. We have been to, we've been to Mars, uh, we've been closer to the sun than anybody else, and uh, we're going to Jupiter. So, so we're going to be helping with the, um, the moons of Jupiter, the uh, uh, Jupiter orbiter, I, if you will. The, the icy moons? Sorry, yes, that's right. The juice, okay. Jupiter icy moons explorer. So we're involved in those as well. So, the, you know, the moon is, is an interesting uh, playground uh, for everybody in the space industry. The next space station will be around the moon. Uh, the Artemis missions are very uh, interesting and informative. Uh, and we are absolutely involved in, uh, in going to the moon and helping to do that, yes. Okay, so as promised, let's just talk a few minutes about radiation because, you know, we're technically well, sorry, it was supposed to be a non-technical podcast. So even though many listeners may be aware of the radiation environment up there and what that does, um, why don't we talk a few minutes sort of explaining you know, the, the specific challenges that radiation poses to computing in, in Leo, and then obviously the further out we go, the worse it gets. Yeah, space has different neighborhoods. Uh, some are friendly for um, for radiation, uh, others are not. Jupiter, for instance, should be an interesting uh, <laughs> an interesting play. But as you go through the Van Allen belts and, and others, you, you, you get a lot of radiation, which cause a lot of um, issues, if you will. So we're really focused on... Um, making sure that uh, I mentioned our virtual radiation shield. So, you know, we're focused on correcting random errors and external memories and data links. So we have to assume that errors will occur uh, as we go through the uh, the different belts and we monitor the health, we enforce the recovery. The, the issue with radiation is that if you flip a bit here or there, uh, depending upon the bit, those can have pretty drastic um, mm -hmm pretty drastic uh, <laughs> ramifications. So what we do is obviously there's hardware elements that, that we have, but also from a software perspective, there's, if you're intelligent enough in your software and you do multi-layer um, high density storage, multi-layer architectures, there's the ability to be resilient as you pass through these different belts. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the case of the solar orbiter, we were behind a, a heat shield for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but it really gets to making sure that the radiation is taken care of. Uh, and, and common uses uh, today are, are hardware, uh, making sure that you have enough encasing and you have enough shielding from that. But um, you know that, that's been a, a detriment, uh, if you will, in terms of the costing. So radiation can <laughs> and will, we, we assume that it will, uh, flip bits, if you will, in our, uh, in our storage, in our processing, and there needs to be uh, mechanisms to overcome that. And from the sounds of it, you're using both what you call the virtual, like the sort of algorithmic adjustments, kind of basically checking where stuff still makes sense, and if not, then basically correcting it, as well as hardware uh, mitigation strategies on the hard on the hardware side is it are you doing the mitigation sort of let's say so to speak from the silicon up or is it shielding or how should we imagine that yeah from sort of a um, combination of both so we do um, raid uh, within the satellite um, so we have redundancy across independent disks. We distribute our storage and uh, we make sure that it's able to work within a high endurance uh, environment. So it's a combination of the two. And by the way, just opening a bracket. So to the extent you are, um, you're doing it from the silicon up. So I assume you don't have your own sort of like, um, Vava manufacturing. I assume you're fabulous that you're outsourcing the manufacturing of the ships, right? That's right. Yes. And. There's, there's obviously a lot of talk these days about you know supply chain issues and in microchips. Does that affect you guys yet? We have to assume that it will, so we plan accordingly. But we haven't seen that uh, to date. So we 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 put the uh, <laughs> the contingency in there, but uh, we haven't seen that to date. Gotcha. I guess also the the unit numbers, although I assume and hope they're they're growing. Of course, I guess the, the unit numbers of the chips that you you guys and your competitors use is also obviously very far away from like cell phones or anything like that. Um, but speaking about it, I mean, roughly speaking, if you can give us those numbers as some sort of like sense of magnitude, how many boards or computers or whichever is the, the best metric are you guys selling uh, per year? And where do you think this might go in, you know, medium term timeframe? Sure. Yeah. We've been on, um, we've been on 50 missions. We have hundreds of computers. Uh, in space uh, today. So uh, certainly we're not at the, uh, <laughs> we'd love to be at the cell phone levels, right? Um, but we're, we're, we're looking at the demand curve and, and taking it up. So we're, we're looking at the uh, hundreds, if you will, at this stage, uh, likely growing into the thousands over time. But uh, we're, we're sort of in that range at this point. And if you look a little bit at the market and we started talking about, as you started mentioning some of your customers, like the agency, like the, the, the very space agencies for, for their missions. But if you're looking more on the commercial side of things, um, I mean, is that starting to happen? And then what kind of um, companies um, take interest in your, in your products? Is it the remote sensing companies? Is it also other players? Yeah, we're seeing a few. So the remote sensing folks, uh, the Earth observation folks, see the absolute value um, and they, they see the cost savings, if you will, uh, of being able to process on board. So uh, we've been having very good talks with remote sensing earth observation folks. Data centers in space um, is another area that we have had some significant uh, traction with. The ability to um, store on orbit, the ability to uh, compute closer to the user uh, has been a, a, something that has resonated with us. Um, the edge computing also. So edge computing, the ability to compute uh, at the edge and make sure that decisions, not all decisions need to be made by headquarters, if you will. And, and that cuts down on the, uh, the, the traffic flow and the 
uh, more importantly, the uh, chattiness, if you will, uh, of the application. And we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, lot of interest in the comms side as well. You know, we mentioned the um, uh, Leo, Mio, and, and Geo. There, there's a ton of um, Leo interest in general mm -hmm. in the industry. You know, I'm not sure if it's tens or hundreds of folks want to do Leo constellations um, and, and focused on Leo, which is a completely different animal than than Geo. And the Geo market is is certainly not going away. You know, uh, I think it was 20 years ago what uh, people were asking, um, and I was a Geo person, if you will, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, what will happen to Geo in 20 years? And um, our answer was, uh, we'll still be there <laughs> because Geo has the advantage of reach. It has the advantage of um, coverage that a, that a Leo doesn't have. And then enter Mio, if you will. So medium Earth orbit has a lot of advantages over both, but disadvantages over both. Uh, it, it's, it's the Goldilocks, if you will, uh, in many ways, but uh, it doesn't have the latency and jitter uh, uh, of a... Um, of a Leo, but it does have latency uh, advantages over a geo. But then if you look at the economics of, uh, and, and frequency rights at geo are, are not going to change very often, uh, but the economics of doing a Mio constellation versus a Leo constellation are very different in terms of CapEx requirements, one, two billion versus four, six billion. But the uh, physics uh, are difficult. You know, there are a lot of people that are looking to take a handset to space. Getting a handset to Leo is much easier than getting a handset to Mio, unless you have a, a huge antenna there that can that can focus the physics, if you will. So we we've seen it, you know, just to summarize in remote sensing, earth observation, data centers in space, edge computing, and in the uh, old school, if you will, which is now no, new school, uh, comms market at all the orbits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm going to assume that you guys are probably your strategy is probably to remain a let's call it a component supplier, right? You're not going to do any of these use cases yourselves, even though I, I could imagine that something like data centers in space that is such a direct application of your equipment that I guess in theory, that's something you could do yourselves if you wanted, but that's probably not your strategy as I understand it, right? Uh, it's to be determined. I mean, there's, okay. there's um, we're, we're still in the um, development of that strategy. There are elements that we certainly want to be a systems provider to those that do data centers in space, but data centers in space is a brand new, a brave new world, if you will, right? Yeah. So um, we want to be involved. We want to, uh, and we're working through the business models now. It may make sense for us to be a, a data center in space provider down the line, or it may make sense for us to be the enabler of such. Uh, or something in between. So we haven't ruled anything out. Uh, it's a brave new world, as I said, uh, but it's exciting to us. So uh, we're still in, in determining that. Yeah. Um, so leaving aside the data centers, even though that is very exciting. So for your typical, or quote unquote, typical, so say remote sensing constellation, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, sort of the some of the best known so optic, optical Earth observation constellations, they're relatively small satellites, right? It's like, you know, 3U and something like that. Is that... Uh, we haven't actually spoken to sort of like the, the basic um, specs of your products and you probably have various products, I guess, but sort of like, what is the size, the weight, can you fit that on a three, for example, on a three U, three U satellite, or is it more for like small sat or if somebody wanted to use your product, like where, where's the sweet spot? Where, where is it actually feasible? Yeah. Taking a ground up approach uh, where we draw minimal power 
where our size is um, is small and our weight is minimal because of our algorithms. Mm -hmm. We we can get down to certainly into the small sats. We can get into the um, the three U units, um, and there's going to be okay. different form factors. So because of our approach um, and because of our our cost base, quite honestly, uh, we're able to focus on um, spacecraft of different sizes. So uh, we, we come at it from a modular approach and there'll be more information on our, our, our size, weight and power um, come uh, 1Q. That, that'll be the timing of our first product announcement. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be building from there. So we'll be able to share more of that information um, in the new year. Okay, that, that'll be interesting. And by the way, is there any... Um... I, I think you guys originally, um, you, you're originally an Israeli company. I think there was also originally some some links to 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 the military. Is there any sort of export restrictions on your products, or are they sort of freely usable? Freely usable, no export uh, restrictions. Um, our CEO is based uh, here in the states. He's over in uh, Los Altos. Uh, I'm here in the states. We're building up um, uh, functionality here in the states. Uh, still a small company but we're going to be tailored towards our uh, our market. And we see most of the growth outside of uh, Israel, if you will. Uh, we are an Israeli company uh, that's now uh, spreading its wings, if you will, and uh, to become, quote unquote, more American or, or more rest of world. So we see most of our opportunities and we certainly appreciate and we've grown from um, our, our business within Israel. But we we our mission really is to take that technology to take that vision and our mission global so we have no export restrictions no okay and then i guess sort of another element of i guess it falls within specs of the products and and i i appreciate what you just said that there's going to be more news in the first quarter but maybe we can talk sort of qualitatively about it i was going to ask you about the pricing right because that's sort of obviously another question for you know if you're a remote sensing or other entrepreneur and maybe you're developing a, a satellite system each satellite costs you i don't know two three four hundred five hundred thousand dollars and then sort of it's obviously going to be relevant of how much your uh, computer costs and then and, and then the benefits. Um, but maybe one interesting question around that is we're seeing more and more um, proposals for, let's call it like hosted solutions, right? People basically providing satellites um, where they can host sensors and other things, right? So people don't have their own have to build their own satellite platforms. Do you see like some natural role there for like Ramon systems to just be, you know, naturally sitting on those hosted platforms and then it can be used as a shared resource for whoever is hosted on that platform? Absolutely. And I think you've been involved in our strategy meetings because <laughs> that's exactly what we're talking about. You see these, um, um, the service providers who rightly so are becoming um, satellite as a service providers, right? Where you 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 act as a apartment building, if you will, where your apartment building, you, you offer the utilities and the cable and the heat and the water, and you allow folks to ride on your satellites and provide different missions. So we do a couple things. One is we make the, uh, the buses, the platforms themselves smarter uh, so that the, um, the satellite as a service providers can be more intelligent uh, and more efficient in their power usage, in their um, not real estate, because real estate is already set when you launch, but computing resources, if you will. Uh, and then for the service provider that rides on those, you have the ability to reprogram services because once a mission starts, if the mission changes, it's very difficult um, 
refocus or um, uh, re repurpose uh, something that's been launched, let's say a year, two, three from now. So that's one of our prime areas is though is those folks that are looking to launch satellites as a service for service providers that are looking to provide their service on those because the more intelligent a spacecraft is, the, the more functionality and flexibility those spacecraft and those services become. So that's an absolute target for our uh, for our products, yes. Very interesting. Um, and I guess you could even play various, I mean, without, I don't want to sort of try to prod out confidential like strategy meeting information from you, but I guess, <laughs> I guess you could even sort of imagine various models around it, right? You could just sell your entire system to those operators of hosted platforms or you could even like... Um, uh, you know, lease out time or computing time or something. Um, this is sort of, I guess, various ways one one could think about that, and, you know, various possibilities. Yes, again, uh, that's some, <laughs> something that we are absolutely focused on. If you can imagine uh, offering services that allow anyone on Earth to program a satellite, right? Um, if you have open APIs, if you have the ability to program um, spacecraft and, and satellites, you then open it up to the larger community. You either open it up to the service provider themselves or the service provider can then sell to the end user the ability to have a programmable resource on orbit. Um, so we absolutely see many ways and and you know we're we're changing sort of the value chain here, um, and, and that's what ex that's what ex is exciting about it. It's not the standard satellite manufacturer, satellite operator, satellite service provider, ground equipment manufacturer. We're, we're once you get into the software world, you open up so many possibilities and so many business models uh, to solve problems that we don't even know about yet. One interesting thing is you know once we once we launch a satellite today, um, the technology is pretty much obsolete uh, and it's set for the next five, seven, 10, 15 years. If you can imagine something that you launch a satellite and you only use 25% of its processing power day one, that's okay mm -hmm. because you then have 75% processing power a year from now, two years from now, now, five years from now. And those that are concerned with making money on these things can then say that my power draw is only 25% year one, 50% year two, and you build a business model that 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 focuses on that. And then you can upsell services, if you will. Mm -hmm. You can upsell services, you can write new programs, you can, that that's where we're going. So I don't want to uh, elaborate too much, but uh, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. And and you've kind of, you mentioned at the very beginning sort of the importance of developing um, I think you call it like a software ecosystem. So where, where does that actually stand right now? And how do you how do you propose to build that that ecosystem? And how should I imagine that? Is there any sort of comparison? I don't know. Is it like a Raspberry Pi type? I don't, I don't know. Is there any sort of easy way to imagine that or picture that, how it may evolve? Yeah, we've been talking to a lot of non-space players, a lot of folks that want to get into space, some big big, big companies that want to get into space. They're not quite sure how to. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking to mobile operators that that sort of kind of understand space, but not sure how it plays. And 3GPP and release 17 and 18 and the incorporation of 5G elements into spacecraft is going to be very interesting. Um, but we're pulling a lot of um, interest from those that have tried to get into the space industry, but, but it's not easy for folks to get into the space industry. And, and, and having the discussions of ground-based technology, ground-based functionality, programmability uh, into space, that's speaking the language of those that haven't moved into space. And, and that's what makes it exciting. And, and, you know, we're opening the aperture to what is possible in space. So we're, we're certainly uh, <laughs> positioning ourselves as a catalyst for, uh, for other big players to enter the space world. Okay. So if all kind of goes to, you know, 
plan appreciating that you guys are still sort of formulating the plan of course to some extent and also dynamically responding to yeah what is a very dynamic market environment but where, where do you guys see ramon in whatever the right time frame is like five ten years down the road sort of what's the what's the vision here of what ramon ramon should be if everything goes goes super well sure yeah we want to you know we all have a brand in this industry so we want to be the supercomputing uh platform of space uh taking new ideas new concepts into space five years from now we uh we will be uh in steady state in the remote sensing area in the earth observation area uh through either uh joint ventures business partnerships you name it. Um, we will be in the comms market as well. You know, we're evaluating which which Leo constellations um, will be moving forward. Um, from from a Leo constellation perspective, every um, mission, if you will, uh, is bespoke. So every Leo constellation seems to be doing something something different. From a geo perspective, there's a lot of commonality there uh, in terms of. Um, channelization, beam forming, um, and there's really not a lot of processing or storage going on in uh, in Geo. We, we we hope to change that. So we hope to move the industry forward uh, at steady state. We'll be at uh, Geo Mio Leo. We'll be um, working with Earth observation, remote sensing, really working on uh, gathering insights. And we want to be part of remo removing <coughs> satellite from the equation. And, and people in the satellite industry get worried when you say that. But whenever satellites become invisible and they're just part of an overall hybrid infrastructure, and this is going to be key with uh, the 3GBP 5G pushes, that's when we've made it. That's when we've increased the uh, addressable market for uh, satellite communications or, or the space industry, if you will, into the larger telecom network. And, and, and so I guess that means you, you'd hope that a substantial number of satellites in the end will have sort of like how we have to stereotypically the computers which have the sticker on them, like Intel inside or the gaming laptops have the NVIDIA inside, you'll have to, maybe you don't have the sticker, but basically <laughs> a substantial number of satellites have Ramon inside. Is, is that the idea? Absolutely. That, that's what we're shooting for. Um, and that's what we're going for. Yes. Okay, good, good stuff. Um, okay, so I guess in terms of this outlook for the future, one thing that has historically been um, taking time in the space industry is is just getting stuff space ready and and certifying it, right? Uh -huh. Which which is sort of very different from the, if anything, like increasing speed that we've seen in um, in the cycles in in the computer industry and in, in the chip industry. Do, do you see a clash here? Is that clash resolving itself? Are we getting are we getting to quicker certification in space? Do, do you see a potential issue here, or is that is that just um, about to go away? Yeah, flight heritage seems to be uh, the thing here, right? So, if you've been in flight, if you've um, proven yourself, and we're certainly looking at um, getting additional units um, onto different spacecraft, different missions. Um, but if you have the heritage, you know, we, we've had zero failures uh, over our 50 plus missions. We have hundreds of computers up there, 50,000 days. So it's going to be flight heritage. Uh, certification will be uh, will remain a challenge, uh, and rightly so. You know, having been on the service side <laughs> and having had satellites fail in the past, uh, I know that um, it, it is a um, it's a drastic effect on the bottom line if uh, if 
the spacecraft doesn't work for, for a number of reasons, right? So uh, it could be solar panels, it could be um, thrusters, it could be, uh, we've I, I've had satellites become zombies in the past, right? So um, being able to recover from that, one, recover from a physical standpoint, and in the instance that I raised, there actually was a physical, um, there was a physical <laughs> urgency in the geo arc to get the satellite back. Um, but also um, from a business perspective, if units fail, if, if processing goes down, you know, it's, it's, it's not a simple, well, let's take what's used, what we're using in data centers and just put it into space. Well, no, that's, that doesn't quite work, especially um, if you <laughs> need a certain amount of years to make money on the program. You know, and, and one example that, that we can use is if you design something for two years, for instance, the Cygnus mission, um, mm -hmm. looking at the GPS signals, and it just turned five, right? A two-hour tour, if you will, just turned five. So the ability to continue on with missions and making sure that everything works. And, you know, we, we don't take lightly the fact that the processing unit is going to be the heartbeat <laughs> of and the brains of the operation. So so we, we certainly don't take that lightly and, and nobody that gets into this, the processing and space business should either. So that question on sort of look, looking on the lookout for the future, um, the various use cases that we already touched upon and maybe others that we may not have mentioned explicitly. Do you have sort of like a, a favorite use case that you've seen? Favorite use case? Well, that's like picking, <laughs> picking, picking the, my favorite <laughs> child, right? Um, one thing that I've seen is, you know, big data is becoming bigger. So, um, the Earth observation folks, the remote sensing folks are really challenged with getting that data uh, spe specifically into downlink locations that they're um, they're comfortable with, right? Getting data into one of the Five Eyes countries, for instance, or mm -hmm. getting data if it, for, for government military applications back to headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, but that requires a lot of storage. So as cameras and instrumentation in general, but as cameras become stronger, um, the, at the end of the day, it's all pixel. So right now you have to upload all of that data and, and satellites are certainly tasked. Don't get me wrong. So on the ground, you task and you say, you know, there's activity and location X. So every satellite flying over location X, take as many pictures as you can and do your scans. But still, you have to store that data. You have to wait until you're over the gateway. You have to downlink it. And if, if one could, in theory, I'm just going to throw out a number, uh, process 50% of that data, 60% of that data, uh, on board and say, well, this isn't new, this isn't new, this isn't new, mm -hmm. uh, and this is not useful. Um, you can then take larger pictures, do larger scans, uh, increase compression or decrease compression, uh, and then send it back to data uh, headquarters so that only headquarters, uh, headquarters only gets the data they need as opposed to all this useless data. So as I mentioned before, that's <laughs> a savings of storage, that's a savings of power, that's an increase of lifetime of the spacecraft. Uh, my other favorite child, is the ability to more intelligently use spectrum at geolocations mm. for tailored applications. Because the geobirds still will be 12-year life, 15-year life. Yeah. And um, having had missions change five years into my satellite's life, I know that it's very difficult to take one satellite designed for a geographic location, fly it around the world, and then make it <laughs> applicable to another geographic location. But with channelization, with 
beam forming. With the implementation of both in conjunction, you can then be much more intelligent with your spacecraft resources and really make sure that you can maximize profitability over the lifetime of the spacecraft. So sorry, I chose two. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no worries. And I, I fully agree with those two. Those are very exciting. And I do think the, the data centers in space is, is just very intriguing as well. And then, you know, kind of coming back to a, a sort of the throwaway comment I made about crypto earlier, I'm, actually a few years ago, I was uh, actually, I literally ran the analysis of the economic analysis of doing a Bitcoin mining satellite um, in, in, in space, kind of taking advantage of um, unlimited solar power. And that's actually when I first realized sort of like how many generations behind, at least at that point, the computing hardware was in space. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we hope to change that. Uh, it's, yeah. a big, it's a big vision and we won't do it on our own. Uh, we're going to do it with partners. But uh, yeah, we need to get there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I'm going to make I'm going to make the segue to sort of science fiction where we always end up these um, these episodes, right? And of course, science fiction has had prominent examples of um, you know uh, basically supercomputers um, or artificial intelligence in space, you know, ranging from uh, friendly voices like the Star Trek computer all the way to Hell Nine Thousand from <laughs> 2001: <laughs> Space Odyssey. <laughs> And so we we can't have we can't have either of those right with very advanced um, uh, advanced computers. So sci-fi, what's your any favorites? Again, choosing your favorite child, right? But uh, my focus is on uh, I like time travel. Mm -hmm. So I think time travel provides a lot of certainly technical. Um, elements, but also philosophical elements, right? The idea of determinism versus free will. If we can go back in time and make a decision, would we change it? Uh, are we really working in free will or has the future already been determined? And, and one of my favorite uh, authors is Ted uh, Chiang, uh, the stories of your life and others, Exhalation, that series uh, for folks that have seen The Arrival movie mm -hmm. the fact of you know the idea of circular time I, I think is very intriguing right would you if you had the choice would you go back and make a different decision so i think techno science fiction is fiction uh based in science or speculative science right and i think what got me on the um <laughs> on the path of time travel is back when i was in uh, middle school i read uh, ray bradbury's uh, a sound of thunder Right, and and I was just last week in uh, Costa Rica with my family, and mm -hmm. we were work we were walking on a trail, right? And the tour guide said, "Don't step off the trail." And my kids said, "Well, why can't we step off the trail?" Uh, <laughs> and I, I remembered the movie because uh, a sound of thunder is they go back in time. It's it's set in 2055, and folks go back in time and they want to hunt dinosaurs, right? But you can only kill a dinosaur that's going to die in, in the next day anyway because you don't want to change the future. Mm -hmm. So they go back and 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 then they come back to the future and everything is different. So there's philosophical elements there, but then it gets into the political side too. So the idea of going back in time and making a decision, if you could make a change, would you make a change? Uh, really intrigued me as a child. It came back to me even a week ago, but uh, again, picking one of my favorite children, <laughs> time travel is one. I, I do like the supercomputing, the ancillary justice um, work by Leckie, I think is, is, is extraordinary. It's the idea of, of, um, um, to your point, the, the, the 2001 um, spacecraft and humans becoming of one mind and, and thinking together. So uh, science fiction is <laughs> has led a lot of us to new ideas, and uh, I hope it continues to do so. Excellent. And on the on the time traveling thing, one one of one of the works that just sprung to my mind, and you've read it, is uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, 
Slaughterhouse Five, yes. where you have basically an alien species which can see time basically as a block, so it can see along that dimension as well. And it's it's quite fascinating. Also, of course, as time travel, it's it's also always quite confusing. <laughs> it is, and everybody has a different definition of time travel too. So every author has taken a different path to define what time travel is, what time travel isn't. So it's, it's very interesting. Anyway, um, Steve, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to say on the science fiction part, whatever you guys do with supercomputers in, uh, in the future, just make sure we can sort of, if they become hell 9000s, we can switch them off. <laughs> fail safe in there. But we'll be we'll following the Ramon uh, path with, with great interest as we, we, we certainly do need supercomputers in space. So all the best uh, for the future there. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. And maybe we'll have you back in a couple of years and see where this all went that would be great i really appreciate the uh, the opportunity i also uh really appreciate the uh the space entrepreneurship class you have on udemy i've, uh, oh, I've learned you. a lot from it so far so thank you for that uh thank you for the time and, and the very interesting question thanks steve all the best cheers well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast if you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.